Deceptions Podcast. Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat. A new year approaches, which brings a new calendar, of course, and for many, a new set of resolutions. Perhaps a gym membership, a list of books to read, trips to take, family or friends to visit, sleep more, worry less, places to go, people to see, things to do. We've been making these resolutions at the turning point of the new year for a very long time. Some credit the Babylonians with kicking off the trend about 4,000 years ago, celebrating the new year every March in time for the planting of crops. Although four millennia ago, resolutions were less about visiting the gym or cutting back on caffeine, and more along the lines of affirmations of loyalty to the king pledges to deities to pay off debts, and returning any farm equipment that had been borrowed. If promises were kept, the gods would grant favors. And if not, it was their favor that a Babylonian would fall out of. Things would go either better or worse than their current state, depending on whether or not they kept their New Year pledges. The Babylonians then passed the New Year's resolution baton to the Romans, who carried on the tradition of making New Year's pledges of good conduct and civic behavior. When Julius Caesar altered the calendar and made January 1 the start of the new year, Janus became the poster god of the New Year's festivities. The god of beginnings and endings, doors, gates, and passageways. With his two faces, Janus looks both forward and back, and was thought to be the perfect emblem of January his namesake month, that looks back at the old year and on to the new one. At their core, New Year's resolutions indicate a desire for improvement, a better life, the good life. They are annual accessories to what some call personal growth, sometimes as well known for being made as for being broken. Recent surveys on New Year's resolutions suggests 37% of Americans make them, and almost double that percentage for people in Australia. The notion that resolutions are easily made and easily broken is a familiar one, but some surveys suggest that for those who do make resolutions, a significant number of them do keep them, at least in part. It is thought that key to the success of such resolutions, as well as more general notions of personal growth and development, is the imagination. Specifically, the ability to imagine a possible self. 
Researchers in the field of self-concept have found that the ability to imagine a future possible self, either better or worse than the self you are now, is the key that can unlock the motivation to change. The idea of the possible self got its start in the mid-1980s from a study conducted by psychologists Hazel Marcus and Paula Nurius. Their paper, Possible Selves, explores how the idea of a possible self provides both the inspiration for the change and a benchmark against which to compare the current self, both before and after a change occurs. The idea of the possible self springs from theories of self-knowledge or perception. Statements regarding the current self are often I am statements, descriptive assertions set in the present, such as I am a good worker or I am an average parent. Whereas notions of the possible self are more related to a person's hopes and fears for themselves in the future, to the states of being that a person would either like to be or not like to be. For the possible self, both better and worse selves can fire a person's motivation to change. A feared possible self may be the catalyst for change. For example, a person with a family history of diabetes may make changes to her diet to diminish the risk of onset of the disease. Or a child with an alcoholic parent may become a teetotaler. And at the same time, thoughts of a positive possible future such as the desire to be a better writer, the desire for a promotion, the hope of a stronger friendship, may also bring about both the motivation to change as well as actual changes in behavior needed to achieve these goals or desired outcomes. The person who wants to be a better writer may start writing in a journal each day. The one hankering for a promotion may put in more hours at work. The one wanting a stronger friendship may set aside time in a busy week to spend time with a friend. According to Marcus and Nurius, the reason why the idea of the possible self is so effective in bringing about change, or in the context of a new year, making a resolution more likely to be kept, is because, as they state in their paper, possible future selves, for example, are not just any set of imagined roles or states of being. Instead, they represent specific, individually significant hopes, fears, and fantasies. It is the connection to the person in the present and their particular hopes or fears for the future that makes the possible self so effective. Hope and fear. Somehow the possible is connected to them both. The word possible, of course, means something that is able to be done, capable of being achieved. The earliest use of the word in English is found in John Wycliffe's translation of the Bible from around 1382 in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus beheld and said to them, With men this thing is impossible, but with God all things be possible. 
the context for the use of the word is a conversation that could be summed up as one about the possible self, an exploration of how to achieve the ideal future state. A man had come up to Jesus and asked him, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? This is not unlike a question about what habits or practices a person must put into place in order to arrive at a better state, a desired possible self, albeit a higher stakes version of a New Year's resolution, a bit more eternal. In a sense, he's saying, I know the possible self I want to have, the future state I want to be in, I just need to know what I have to do to get there. Jesus' answer comes in three parts, moving from a more general category of goodness to a very specific action for the man. His first response is to question the moral category offered by the man, goodness. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. He then follows this up with a directive. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. The man isn't interested in generalities. He's looking for something more specific. Which ones? Jesus offers him a selection that cover both outward behavior and inner thoughts and affections. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The man still isn't satisfied. It's all too easy. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus then tasks him with a very specific action. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It had suddenly become very real for the man, very specific and very difficult. Impossible, even. The possible self he desired was out of his reach. It was out of his hands. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. And as the man walked away, Jesus said to his disciples, It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is only at the mention of wealth as the cause of the man's sadness and Jesus' following statement of the difficulty of the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven or eternal life, as the man phrased it, that we find out that the man is rich. There's no mention of money earlier, no descriptions of possessions or finery, but there is another kind of tally, an inventory of sorts, of what the man purports to either have or believes that is possible for him to have. 
and it starts with goodness. What good thing must I do? His question suggests that he believes he can do good things or be good. In terms of the commandments that are mentioned, he's kept them all. He's done all the good things. He struggles to see what he lacks. He cannot see what might prevent him from attaining his goal. It's one of those moments of paradox with Jesus. He's the king of those. When everything you thought would be a benefit is actually a deficit. When a big bank balance can actually amount to very little. When you realize that the desired future state, the possible self, arrived at on your own terms, by your own hands, was never actually possible. The way to the ideal future state the man desires, the best possible self, the eternal one, actually comes later in the same book. When Jesus uses the word possible again on the night before he dies. And he went forth a little and fell down on his face, praying and saying, My father, if it is possible, pass this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. The possible self. In this moment, the one that Jesus examines is the one that does not have to suffer or die. The one who does not have to experience the most fearsome death. In terms of sentence structure, Jesus' mention of what is possible does not stand on its own. It is placed in one independent clause, which is balanced by another independent clause, with a hinge of a semicolon between them. On one side is Jesus' desire for a possible self that does not suffer, and on the other side is the pledge, yet not as I will, but as you will. His New Year's resolution, so to speak, is not a list of action items, but a resolve to obey God the Father. Perhaps this is the way to the best possible self, the realization that it's not found within us or in our own imaginings, but located here in Jesus' words and in his actions that follow, his death and resurrection. Perhaps the best life is not found by locating our greatest hopes and deepest fears within ourselves in what we may do or not do, but in yielding them all to the will and the goodness of God. Perhaps they can only ever be found in His resolve rather than our own.
Deceptions podcast.